good to see you tonight. I trust you had a good day. We had almost a full moon out there. It was pretty incredible. I guess it's supposed to be a full moon tomorrow night, but it's also supposed to be cloudy tomorrow night, so good luck with that one. So that's probably the best look we're going to get, but it was pretty cool tonight. All right, let's open in a word of prayer as we look at loving one another. Father, we do thank you that as we look at this incredible subject from your word, loving one another, it's because something more incredible took place. You loved us. And the reason we would even choose to love others is because you first chose to love us. And we thank you for that. And we are humbled by that because, Lord, there was nothing in us that would make you want us. And we thank you that the way that you have chosen us, have called us, justified us, sanctifying us, and someday glorifying us is through Christ, uh, the perfect expression of your love. And so tonight, as we look at the subject as it's related to this body, Community Bible Church, that you would give us wisdom and understanding of how we might think as individuals, but also think as a church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I trust you are all doing well today. Come on down. Hey, how are you? Um, trying to remember how many years ago it was. Uh, there was a stretch of time when we had we got opportunity to go to Florida for vacation. My in-laws would be like, get yourself down there with the kids. We'll provide a place to stay. Other family members come down there, all this kind of stuff. And we got on Florida, so it was fun and all that kind of stuff. But it was years ago and our kids were younger. And one Sunday when other people, the other family members are gone, I forget why, we were still in Florida, in Orlando. And we just picked this Baptist church that was close by. All right, get on the Internet, look, all right, what's close by? I don't think we did the Internet because we probably didn't have, I don't know, it was late 90s, maybe 2000, something like that, all right? Um, but we found a Baptist church. It was a couple miles away, went there. And lo and behold, of all things, the, the pastor's preaching on love. And he was preaching on love. He was doing a series from 1 Corinthians 13. And he, he started the, the message in a very unusual way. Uh, do you know the Tina Turner song, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? All right. Well, right before he preached, that thing cranked full blare on the speakers the whole song. And he promptly told us that the previous week he had played a Beatles song, and for the life of me, I was asking my wife, like, what song was it? I don't remember. Some song that the Beatles did on love, maybe what's got... What is it? I'm just waiting to... Oh, you need his love. I think that was the one. I was trying to, I was trying to think if that was the one. I asked Carol last night, she goes, I don't remember. But I remember with our kids being fairly young, thinking, okay, I didn't see that coming, number one. And that probably won't ever happen again to hear Tina Turner singing in church, at least any church that I want to attend. Um, but, you know, the, the message wasn't a bad message. It just, you wonder how long into the message people finally got the song out of their head and got into the message uh, about the Word of God. Because if they were living during that time and that was part of their repertoire of songs, that might stay with them for the whole service. Um, I say all that to say, though, even though we grow up as a believer, depending on how long we've been a believer, being informed by what love is, what love looks like, we are still incredibly influenced by our culture. Our culture being music, movies, but even our culture's ideas of what love is. Um, I'm just, I'm in a counseling class with David Pollock. <laughs> Incredible class. It's an online class. He's written a lot of books. 
I just read an article the other day that really made me think, and I've heard this thing before about the problem with unconditional love, uh, because that's a buzzword out there. We should have unconditional love for one another. But that's not a word that was developed from, from scriptures. That's a word that's come from society, and there's some baggage connected to that. Um, that baggage with unconditional love is, I accept you for the way you are. And it's like, well, that sounds biblical. But the whole point of that thinking in society often is, I make no judgments, I think nothing bad of you, I just accept you for the way you are. And think in your mind, think grandpa and grandma, all right? Uh, and that's, you know, for those of you that are grandpas and grandmas, no, no slam on you, I'm looking around going, I'm getting dirty looks right now. But, you know, it's like seeing on a grandma's wall, grandma's paddle, and it's this little thing with this big padded pillow on it, you know, it's like, yeah, that's pretty much it. We used to joke saying when our kids came home from staying with grandpa and grandma for a couple days, it was like serious debrief for a day or so, you know, because that's how life was, but this is how life still is, all right? This is, this is life. But I say that because the idea of unconditional love that has been pulled from our society into Christianity is God is this grandfather that's just kind of going, you know, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. And if anything, Scripture doesn't say that's okay. Scripture says we are bad, but the amazing thing, he still loves us, all right? And, and that's part of the danger in this article that came out on unconditional, or this issue of unconditional love that is weaved into a lot of Christian books, a lot of Christian help books, and him writing the article. And honestly, I will admit, you read the article, it's a little heavy to work through, trying to understand, okay, I get that, I get that, I get that. Uh, But at the bottom end of all of it is this. Yes, God does give us an infinite love. But there was a condition. That condition was Christ. Okay, And if, if I really love someone, I don't just go, hey, that's okay if they're doing something wrong. If I really love someone, I may speak truth into their life. I may have to intervene in their life. I don't just say, it's all good, it's all good. And that's part of the baggage with this phrase, unconditional love out there. So, um, I'm just setting the table because really, these last five weeks uh, of our class going into December are looking at body life, it says in your, in your book, body life being looking at the church and it's going to be looking at five one another's and it starts with love one another tonight and yet admittedly um, we still wrestle with what does that look like Uh, how does that play out because we can still all of us men and women we can still wrestle with love is a feeling And, and then we pull out a Boston song. It's more than a feeling. Okay, okay, great. That goes back another decade or two or three or four, all right? So I just, yeah, now that I've just got you all messed up, I'm this song. Yes, I heard that. I went skiing one time years ago at Mount Brighton, and they played Boston, the one record, all day long. I mean, all day for like eight, ten hours of skiing. That's all we heard on the speakers. So yes, I learned that song. But, admittedly, there's a measure where there's just a skosh of truth in there, all right? Love is more than a feeling, but I would say it's way more than a feeling, all right? And to even define love as a feeling is a dangerous thing. And I I would just simply put it out this way. 
And, and I'm, you know, we're, we are going to get into the book, but I know so many times it's kind of like we go, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this in the book, and I'm like, I don't like that, so I'm kind of jumping off ship a little bit here. But if I want to define love, First um, Corinthians 13 doesn't define it. First Corinthians 13 describes it. All right, it doesn't define it. I mean, essentially, God defines love. God is the definition of love. That's why 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16 says God is love. If you want to know what love is, don't go to Webster's Dictionary. Don't go to dictionary.com. Go to the Word of God. See what God looks like, how He responds. That's how we learn what love is. So saying that then, and I had to wrestle through this, and I, I was trying to think of what Pastor had given recently for a definition of love, and I don't think I wrote it down, so I couldn't find it. But this is a working definition I've used through the years, and that's this. <clears throat> love is a choice of the will to give myself for the benefit of the one who is loved. All right, let me just walk through that. A choice of the will to give myself for the benefit of the one loved. In other words, it says nothing about feelings. Now, that's not to say there are no feelings. You know, I don't want to be like, you know, we're just robots, and it's like I'm doing this for you because I love you. And that's not it. But ultimately, God chose before the foundation of the world that if you are a child of God, he made that choice before he ever said, let there be light. He chose in love to make you his child, to, to call you someday because of his electing grace before the world began. That being so, then we walk through Scripture and John 3.16, which probably everyone in this room could quote, and way back in the 70s, every time a field goal or an extra point was kicked, we'd see John 3.16 in the end zone. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. So the ultimate sense of God's love that we are to mirror and to see is giving ourselves, and, if I can take it a step further, expecting nothing in return. And there's no benefit back to me. Uh, because, honestly, let's admit, we can have sinister motives in our love. And I don't mean like, you know, I'm really doing this because I'm going to get you. That's not it. It's just, it's, it's a mixed bag of how we think. Um, yes, sometimes we just awfully do something because we're expecting something in return. But there are other times when we do it and we don't even realize our selfish motives until later in the game. When somebody squashes us and we go, well, if you're going to do that to me, well then, here we go with this. All right. So, that being said, tonight in what's being discussed in this chapter, it's talking primarily about body life, and that is the life of the church. The church exists as a body, as a community, as a family, and we're going to look at a part of that, but I, I wanted to just at least lay the table with that because, I mean, I could, I could really, and I, I kind of want to ask this question and just get any perspectives from you, what have you seen wrong uh, in the church with love today? And I say wrong in the church with love today. I realize most of us are from this church. But most of us, I think most of us, came from other churches at some point in some time in the past. So all of us, I think looking around the room, all of us have had at least some experience in this church and outside this church, as well as exposure to other churches. And when you see, let's put it this way, problems 
deformities of love in the church, deformities of thinking, of how it looks, what happens. What have you seen that just makes it look like, all right, at the end of the day, we're supposed to be the people that are the love people. If anybody is, the church is. But what have you seen that just doesn't look that way? Any thoughts? Yeah. Growing up um, in conservative fundamental churches, mm-hmm. um, this isn't unconditional love, though. It's kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of tough love mm-hmm. and not like, for the kids that got into trouble and not much of the other side of grace. Like, we understand you did wrong, but we'll help you work through it type of thing. You were, mm-hmm. A lot of people were banished. Yeah. So maybe we grew up with, and I've, I've used this illustration a couple weeks, so forgive me for doing it again, with kind of Amish love. And that is, if you don't follow our plan, our system, we're going to shun you. All right? Um, we're not kicking you out yet, but we're not happy with you. And, and really, some of us in this room may have grown up with parents who, in controlling life, you knew that you were loved as long as you did everything you're supposed to do, but you had serious questions or at least some doubts of, do they really love me? Because the only way they seem to be happy with me is when I've done what I should do or not done what I shouldn't do. And that's a part of what has happened in churches in the past and can still be true today. Thank you. Anything else? Yes? Well, and I want to say something along with that, that um, I think people got the mistaken idea that, that tough love was really showing love, sometimes I think it was used as an excuse to be authoritarian rather than, um, you know, showing the compassion side right. of that. And, and, and so people would use the tough love term as an excuse to do the fleshly thing, right. and that is just be authoritarian. Yeah, so you guys just tease out something. I'll just follow up on this. All right, I think we would all agree that there are some times when we need to exercise tough love, all right? Right? But what would that look like if we did that? What would that look like if we're still going to be true to Scripture? And I'll come back over to you in a second. What would be true to Scripture if we're going to show tough love to somebody? And again, this has become kind of a, a counseling buzzword that probably came out of some books in back in the 80s, 90s sort of thing. What would you think? Yeah. Well, the ultimate goal is reconciliation, bringing them to repentance, not just punishing them for what they did. Okay. Very good. Very good. Keep that in mind. We're going to add that to what anything else anybody has to say. Yes. I'm sorry. We're going back and forth. Sorry. But in a church, not here, not even in the state, that I went to, we had a situation where um, a child did something that was wrong, a child who came from outside the church that came to a Wednesday night program and um, broke in, or her sister broke into the trophy cabinet and took a couple of trophies out of there. Well, the the whole thing was they were expelled from the Awana program, and the explanation that was given to me, because the younger sister who just happened to be in the vicinity wasn't part of that crime, right. um, but happened to be in the vicinity. The whole family was asked not to come back. And what what was said to me about the reasoning for that was that 
well, they're just no longer welcome here because they violated our trust, you know. Oh, how much have we violated Christ's trust? And yet, he doesn't expel us. He does discipline us, and I think discipline is in order, but expulsion from the church? I mean, this Wednesday night program is a part of our church. Well, it's a para, it's a para, what do you call it? Oh, I started to say paralegal. Para, para church. Uh, para church ministry. Para church ministry. It's still our church, you know. And so another another leader and I kind of tried to reason with the leaders to say, we just don't think it's appropriate to just expel them. Can we work together to find a solution? Because our ultimate goal, as you were talking about, our ultimate goal is reconciliation. That's the goal of any correction. Okay. So, pull those two together. I'm going to jump to Troy. So let's just take two, two, two sides of that and pull it together in one. And that is, tough love is not a smackdown. All right? right? It's not a smackdown. It's not like, hey, you messed up one, boom. You know, like, this view of God that people have, God is just up there watching, and he's waiting for how to mess up and go, bam, gotcha. You know? And that's what we have mirrored of God's love. So it's not that, but yes, it is this. It is, love is maybe having to make tough choices, but the goal is always restoration. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always bringing people together, not pushing people away or pushing people out. Very good. You had something else, or did you already forget it now? No, I think the, uh, another vantage point of this idea of tough love is selective love. Because what can often happen is the youth pastor likes the kids that are easy to get along with or the cool kids and the rich kids and those that are the problematic kids um, you can just uh, stay away from or avoid or whatever um, or just be really mean to the whole time or even when you get adults you know I understand the whole idea of you have certain spheres of friends and you like to hang out with those friends um, but at the same time, we're called to love the entire body, and so when there's clicks, it's, it's selective. Right, absolutely. So we're seeing, just in a few of these things you've said so far, how easily biblical love, true love, can morph into a lot of bad stuff. I mean, just look at the bottom of your book. If you're on page 7.1 there... Um, I'm going to kind of jump out of order, down at the sound bites at the bottom. At the very last one at the bottom of sound bites, it has a scripture, and it's talking about the body. It doesn't really say anything about love. But it says from Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, just as each one of us has one body with many members, all right, we've got a body, but we've got arms, fingers, hands, eyes, nose, ears, toes, etc., and these members do not all have the same function. My fingers don't do the same things as my feet do, unless it's with the yellow pages. So in Christ, we are more form. We are many more form one body. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So it's starting with that there is, if we are a believer, we are all part of one family. Now the question is, how does that family get along? All right. We are all one, and we've seen, outside of church, we've seen families that get along really well, and you're like, well, how do they do that? And then you see other families just like, man, they're just nuking each other and screaming at each other in the store and, you know, all kinds of stuff, or, 
you know, you're hearing your neighbor yelling out the back. I mean, I, I remember shortly after we had moved back and during the summer, and it was a horrible thing. It was sad. Uh, neighbor behind us, which I don't know what's going on, but I remember hearing their kids just screaming, saying, I hate you, I hate you, I never want to see you. I'm like, wow, that's a little painful here. Uh, so things go on. You know, these things happen, but in our body, this family, um, those conversations should be decidedly different. Those interactions should be decidedly different. So let's just go back to these sound bites. I wanted to hit three of them, just kind of, kind of teasing out still this issue. At the top of that list under sound bites, it says the church is like a club. I belong to it for the benefits I get, not because I want to contribute anything. Now, would we say that? Okay, thank you. Thank you for that testimony. All right. Um, no, I'm not saying yeah. personally. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, exactly the point. I mean, exactly the point, Bob. And that is, we would never say that, but there are plenty of times we live that. And that is, the country club mentality is I show up, I kind of just chum with my buddies, and we hang out, we have a good time. But at the end of the day, if I don't do anything, I still had a grand time. Because I got to see my people, all right? And, and so, yes, we don't ever say that because we would never say that. We would not even necessarily have ever thought that. But at times we play that out in how we live our love. Uh, go down two below that. It says it's the pastor's job to nurture and build up the church, which reminds me, he hasn't been around to see me lately. All right? Now, I'll admit, um, I've seen that play out a lot. And that's kind of changed, though. Here's, here's the swing of churches. All right? This is just in my brief lifetime. Um, the swing of churches was way over here, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, was um, anything that was significant in the church, the pastor must be there for. If somebody's in the hospital, the pastor's got to be there. I don't want the assistant pastor. I don't want the youth pastor. Give me the big guy. All right? And so the pastor almost has to be all things to all people. And quite frankly... Whether people recognize it or not, they wanted the pastor to play God. Be omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, do it all, be it all, everything else. And so there were plenty of people, and still, that can play out even still today. People be like, well, why didn't the pastor come? Well, because last I knew we were a body, and even though he might be a bigger part of that body... Um, he might not be able to speak to this as well as somebody else. Uh, he might not be able to help you and encourage you as this other person has. So there's that swing. But then over here is the other swing. Now you've got churches and the danger for pastors and trying to swing this back and keep a balance is now you've got pastors who are CEOs. All right, They're Because they kind of switched it from I can't be all things to all people without something giving. And that is either my preaching, something's got to go, because if I'm going to run around like a chicken with my head cut off, something's got to give. But then the other side is I become the CEO and I send out all my underlings and I never interact with people. And, and if a pastor does that, then eventually his preaching can be very biblical, but it can dry up because it's not connected to life. Because um, he's not connected to life. So that's the struggle we have to work through in our churches. One last one I throw out to you. All right, this is just a goofy one. Uh, third from the bottom, it says, I love everyone in our church. In fact, 
I make a point of shaking hands with as many people as, as I can each Sunday morning, unless I hear people coughing, and then I don't shake their hand. All right? Now, we read that, and, and again, we go, really? Okay, we all know that's just a, a kind of a, 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 a short-changed view of love, at least, because I'm thinking, and my, my first reaction is, when I read that, is... Well, politicians do that too. But do I want them near my pockets or, you know, no, not necessarily, all right? Uh, praise God. I'm not, I'm not supposed to say things in church because this is ministry, but I'm kind of glad that the Republicans have control of the Senate. Okay, that's, that's done, all right? But here's what we have to recognize. Some of these caricatures that we've seen and things that we've alluded to are just a part of the problem of the distortion of love. And it starts with a distortion in our own lives, and then it takes on a lot of different forms in the church. And and so that being said, you know, I could go through all the stuff here in this first page, but under grasp the issue, I pick one question out of the four that are listed there. If you notice, we don't have the PowerPoint. I had to cough up the projector to some other group, and it's another story. But here's the one that I want to focus on. Under grasp the issue, the second question says this. How can we take steps to ensure that our faith is focused on others rather than self-centered? In other words, taking the statement in Scripture, faith works through love. It isn't faith over here. we got a lot of people with a lot of big faith and some loving people over here. Um, that is a misunderstanding of Scripture too, this dichotomy. It is the demonstration of our faith is showing itself in love. Love to God, love to others. You know, show me your faith, James says, and I'm going to show you that real faith is faith that demonstrates itself in works. James wasn't advocating a work salvation. James is looking at the person after they're saved by faith. Paul, in Romans, is looking at the person before they're saved by faith. It's two different vantage points. It's all by faith, but on the other side of being a believer... It's faith that demonstrates itself in love. That's what we are envisioning here. All right? Now, <clears throat> said a lot of stuff. Let's move on to, go to page 7.2. Uh, much as I would like to read the case study, I won't read the case study. Uh, we've already talked through a couple things, but let me just give my, again, my feeble attempt at what is the central question or issue before us. And if you looked at my notebook, you'd see I wrote it and scratched it out, wrote it, scribbled. Okay, we're scribbling. I finally came up with, this is where, at least in my murky thinking, I was thinking it through, all right? What is the issue? Genuine love for others, and I'm sorry it's not up here, is a defining mark of a true Christian. That's the first part. Genuine love for others is a defining mark of a true Christian. All right, so if you and I are a true Christian... What should define us as a true Christian, because we're going to see that Jesus says that. So I already knew that because I knew the verse, and probably most of you guys knew the verse as well. Genuine love for others is a defining mark of a true Christian and cannot be learned in isolation. All right? That genuine love is a defining mark of a true Christian and this cannot be loved and this cannot be learned in isolation. In other words, if you memorized every verse in the Bible on love, and you could expound up one side and down the other about what the Bible says about love, 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 and yet not 
live in relationship with the people of this church. And I don't mean just the people that are like you, the people that are not like you, and quite frankly, the people that don't like you or you don't like them. If we're not willing to do that, then we won't learn it and we will have a defective Christian love. All right. That being said, let's look at John 13, 34, and 35, because this really uh, sets the tone for looking at this issue of our relationship as the body showing love. Jesus said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love, if you love one another. We, I grew up, as some of you did, in a church setting where um, culturally in churches we were defending the faith because in the early part of the 20th century, the movement was toward liberal theology and it was the fundamentalist movement started as a response to theology in the churches going wrong. And so what happened then over time was churches became more defined by their theology, more defined by they stand for the truth. Well, there's a measure where, as a church, we should be defined by our stand for the truth. Um, we, we can't waffle on that. We should be distinctly different from, as we're seeing on Sundays, from Catholics, from Mormons, from Muslims. Because our stand on the truth, yeah, we're a little bigoted because we believe this is the only truth. All right, So we have to stand on that. But on the other side of it is... Here's what Jesus says that's very unusual. He doesn't say what's going to make you stand out and make Community Bible Church stand out as we are people that stand for the truth, we believe in the truth, we are rock solid on the Word of God. He says, no, what's going to make you stand out, what should make you and me and us stand out is the love we have for one another. And right now in this calm little room setting where we're all kind of polarized at different tables, sitting here in our own little comfort seats, we're all good with each other. But throw us into a room and have things get a little chaotic, things get a little pressured, things get a little struggled, we're not feeling well, we had a bad day. What happens? How do we respond in those situations? And, and the dynamics can change. But Jesus is saying, if we are his disciples, there's something going on in us that ought to be different. Now, having said that, jump over to page 7.3. Uh, because... I'm just going to ask you to help me answer. Uh, let's just do one of the questions. Um, well, let's do two really quickly. The, top, the two questions at the top of page 7.3, it says, Why do you think Jesus gave this command to his disciples? Aren't Christians supposed to do this naturally? Easy question or easy answer is basically yes or no, right? Do we do this naturally? We do if we are following the world's model. That comes naturally, to, to love in the way that the world loves, like Jesus would say. Yeah, you, you do these things for people expecting in return. I'm telling you, do these things for people that you can't get something in return. Don't be saying, hey, I'm going to take you to this restaurant, and you know that they'll take you to another restaurant. Take somebody, I still remember this guy, uh, we were doing the Christmas program practice over at Inner City a number of years ago, and some dude uh, wanted to meet. He, he came into church. He wanted in because the doors were open. It was some Thursday night of practice or whatever. And he wanted food and gas. And I'm like, okay, here's the deal. 
I don't give you money. Uh, we don't give out money, but I'm happy to go get you some food. And I wasn't gas because he didn't have a car. I needed to take him there. I said, I'll get you food. So we go to Burger King right down the road, and he ordered the biggest of everything on head of menu. I didn't even realize at that time that there was a double Whopper, but he got a double Whopper and the largest of everything possible. Well, that's good. You know, that's, that's part of loving the guy. Never saw him again. Figured I would never see him again. All right? But, yes, when we, when we think of that, all right, that's, that's kind of a natural response if somebody's hungry. Uh, we want to help them, we see this, and yet the problem is we've gotten very cynical about that. Uh, and that is, there's so many people scamming out there, people are just uh, schlepping, and you know, it's like, come on, you know? And I had to learn that in China. That was very hard in China. Because you had horribly handicapped people sometimes out begging. And I had Chinese people tell me, all right, understand, there's a racket in that. They literally will have people that will haul these pe- handicapped people around and, and skim off the money that they're making. And I'll, I'll never forget this. I, I wish I had taken pictures, but you wouldn't do this because this would be creepy and not nice. We live in a city, we live in a city called Qingdao, which is on the east coast of China. Roughly, if you look at America, you look at Virginia, that's about where we were on the east coast of China. Now think of the southern tip of Florida, all right? Going all the way down to Keys, for example. The first year we were in China, we saw this handicapped guy that had no legs and basically pulled himself along at this at this pier begging for money. And we saw him we surrounded by people. I mean, he just, you know, skin was pretty tough and everything from doing this. We saw him at this pier in our city. Think of where Virginia is. That January, we went on a vacation down in southern Florida, southern China, the southernmost tip of China in Sanya. I walk up to McDonald's. And here is this guy. And I'm like, how in the world? You know? Okay? But again, so we see those things, and we run into these things, and we get really cynical about love. It's like, okay, forget it. I'm not helping anybody now, because I don't trust anybody. So, naturally, we wrestle with that. But, here's the tougher question. If Jesus said, our love is supposed to make us stand out, Here's the question it says, is how does a lack of love among God's people affect our Christian witness? In other words, if we aren't getting along, in what way does that affect our witness? How does that affect it? Yes, ma'am. The world would just see us as, you know, the same as them. I mean, there, there, there wouldn't be a uniqueness of, you know. Okay. In other like words. everybody else. Yeah. And, and, and whether we can call it, I've written down a couple of things, whether we could call that an issue of credibility, and that is, you're telling me this, but I don't see any difference in you and anybody else, or significance. You're just another religion looking for money from me, but you're not any different than the rest of us. All right? Yeah, absolutely. What else? You know, I've got basically the same thing. Our love is what separates us okay. from the world. Absolutely. Anything else? I mean, if I, if I could take that and draw it into three words, these are the three words that I just wrestled through in thinking about that question. One of them is distinctiveness. We are distinct from the world because remember, if we go back to our definition of love, love is a choice of the will. It's not motivated by feelings because sometimes I'm going to have to make a choice that goes contrary, completely contrary to my feelings to choose to love this person. So it's a choice of the will, which is what God did to give myself, which is what Jesus did for the benefit of the one love, which is what we received. 
We give nothing back to God. God doesn't need anything from us. So love is perfect in what came to us from Him. So we are distinct from the world. We ought to be by this love. Another thing is credibility. Um, and Carol's heard me say this a number of times. I, I, I've said this, and I guess it's just come to my mind a number of times over the last few years. If we can't get along in the church, sorry, if we can't get along in the church, if we don't turn off our phone, it makes noise. If we can't get along in the church, what do we have to offer to the world? If we can't solve relational problems with one another, and we don't do the cold shoulder avoid, or I just hang out with the people that kind of are like me, and they like me. Get the difference? They are similar to me, and hey, they kind of think I'm pretty cool, so I hang with them. What difference am I than the rest of the world? And they got a great point. Because at the end of the day, if, if the gospel says anything that Paul takes in Romans, and particularly in Galatians, the gospel is bringing together a body that is one in Christ, from all nations, languages, peoples, races, etc., etc., and through Christ making it so that we can be reconciled as one. We can relate to each other. Um, that's what makes us distinct. That's what gives us our credibility, Jesus would say, but also our significance. Um, we are to be marked by our love for God and for others. Now, let's go down to our text, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul, writing from prison in one of his prison letters, says this, I, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You could not help but hear one, 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 one. And the words of unity, the words of togetherness, the words of relatedness, all that stuff in there. Now, in verse 1, just to explain this text a little bit, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling, just so we're clear on that. When we read that in Ephesians 4 and in a couple other places, in Colossians as well, where he says, live a life that is worthy, that doesn't mean, when, when Paul is writing that, that somehow I'm living in such a way that, that, that I was worth it. In other words, I, I've seen this in Christian writing, believe it or not. I've seen this in Christian writings where Jesus died for me because I was worth it. And, and the whole point is, it's kind of taking the idea of the self-esteem, self-image, and all that kind of stuff, and squashed it into Scripture and say, you know, Jesus loved me because I was worth it, you know, and, and that's, that's what this love is all about. Well, you know, Jesus loved you not because you were worth it, because, but because you and I were a big mess, and we weren't worth anything. And, and, and that's what makes that love so incredibly different. So when it says, live a life worthy, literally the word there is, keep picture of a balance, all right, uh, balances, and that is live a life that says, this is what I believe, and this is how I live, it must be in balance, literally live a life that's in balance with what you profess to believe, and how you live that out, and, and this is what he's going to explain then, 
I urge you to do this. And how you do that? Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. And then verse 3 says, make every effort. It sounds like another command. It's not. Uh, Verse 1 gives us the command. Live a life worthy of the calling. That's the command. Have a life that's in balance. This is what that balance looks like. Love in this way. But how to do this, verse 3, is describing. It's a participle. All right? You're like, participle, really? We're going to throw English in on a Wednesday? Yeah. Yeah. I was an English expert in China for eight years, but all my English teachers from high school, they knew better. All right? They knew better. And praise God, I didn't have to teach uh, um, grammar there because I would have screwed them up something fierce. All right? But a participle is not the primary action, but it helps us see a little bit more of what that action is supposed to be. All right? And, and so what he's saying is live a life that's worthy and give yourself completely to this. In other words, be eager, do your best. It's like 21st century terminology. Stay on top of it. So if we've got a mission from, from Jesus that's echoed by Paul here, and that is Jesus said, the world's going to know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Paul says, keep this in balance. You say that you're a Christian over here, live it out this way over here, and stay on top of it. Don't let go of this. You can't let down. Because once we let down on this, Going back to our distinctiveness, our credibility, our significance, all of it goes out the window. All of it means nothing. And and how many times have we seen, um, and I said this uh, before, I said this last week or the week before that, that there's nothing more frustrating to me and perhaps to you as having somebody who claims to be a believer at work who doesn't live out that faith and particularly in how they treat other people. Because, honestly, they ought to be the one that are just the most gracious people. They ought to be the ones that are like, hey, you know, this person's hurting, and I'm going to come alongside them rather than I'm going to steamroll over them to get done what I need to get done. That's what the rest of the world does. So that being said, again, when that happens, it hurts the credibility of the whole witness of any believer in that, in that place, and that's part of our challenge. Now, saying all that, I, I take this over very quickly. We're going to skip this next text, of, uh, next scripture, but let's go over to this first article. We're only going to look at a part of the first article, and then we're going to wrap it up with some questions. Tonight. I've spent most of this time so far talking about luck. If you did go through this chapter, and I'm assuming that that's not an if, I'm assuming you did go through this chapter in the book, all right? Um, you saw that most of the discussion in this chapter was not about love, it was more about the body of Christ and how we are connected, and it really didn't discuss in any great detail the issue of love. So I've spent a little more time developing that in light of that. But let's just look at a couple things uh, to pull out and then hopefully pull some things out and put them back together. There on page 7.6, talking about the body of Christ and I've already alluded to this in previous weeks. As a matter of fact, it was probably the first or second week. But on that left column, uh, about eight lines down, it says, Thus many Christians see the church as a building occasionally inhabited by people. To others, it is an event which takes place on Sunday morning for one or two hours and then ceases until the following week. In other words, unfortunately, the idea of it is tonight people may have said, Hey, yeah, we got to get ready to go to church. Right? 
Now, is that bad to say that? Am I going to scold you saying, hey, don't say that, quit telling, don't tell your kids we're going to church right now? No, that's the way we talk, and that's just what it is. But at the end of the day, we're going to a building. And if that building doesn't have any believers in it, that building is just a building, all right? But once believers come in, and we're here, two or three of us together, we are a church. We have come together. And that's the idea about three paragraphs down, where it's talking about ecclesia, the, the word that's talking about the people that are called out, that we are a called out people, but not, as Jesus prayed, not called out of the world, called out of a life in the world system to live a new life in this body of Christ. Now, that being said, go over on the far right column, the right column of that. Uh, at the top of that, it says there are two ways in which church describes the people of God in the New Testament. You see that at the beginning of that first full paragraph. Uh, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. If I had a, a board here that I could write on, I could write on this, but later I'd be in trouble. Um, if I wanted to draw the church, I would draw a big circle here and call this what we would call the universal church. That is, every believer who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have believed in Christ, who are genuine believers, whether in America, China, Brazil, uh, wherever it may be, any place around the world, all those true believers are a part of the body of Christ. And you get to the book of Revelation, all of those believers as part of the body of Christ will be gathered together before the throne of Christ, and it will be all nations, languages, peoples, all there together. An incredible setting, all right? That is the universal. But in, in that bigger circle, there are smaller circles, a bazillion of these smaller circles, which are the local church. Now, the, 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 the whole body of Christ called the universal church is not where the purposes of the New Testament are played out. They're played out at the local church level. We can't say, well, the, the, the universal church is doing these things. Well, I have... I have no relationship with people in the churches in Brazil. I had some relationship with people in the churches in China and, and, and people in the churches in the Philippines, and I got a couple times to go there, but I don't have relationships with a bazillion other cultures and countries. So we don't work together. But I do have, and you do have, relationships with one another in this church, which is where love is to be lived out, where love has to be lived out. So... That being said, let's flip over here to what a healthy body is on 7.7. Three things that he draws out about what a healthy body is, and he takes it from the text up in the top. If you look at the top left corner of 7.7, he quotes this text and says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And he draws out these three truths. The first truth, which is in the second full paragraph underneath that is, the first truth of the body is its unity. All right, This body is, is one. They're united together. Now, the unity, as he, as he talks about, is not a unity of denominations. All right? Here's what Pastor Ken's talking about on Sunday, about denominations, cults, religions, etc., etc. Let me ask you, do you ever think about why do we have so many denominations? Okay, and Carolyn's going, yeah, everybody else is like, yeah, and then I have to come back out. All right, we're done for the night, all right? Why, why, why do we have different denominations? 
you ever think, why are there so many different religions? Any, any, any thoughts on that? Why there are so many religions? Different interpretations. I, I thought, I don't know, but that's always kind of in my feeling is you interpret it one way and people follow you because you either convince them or they believe the same way you do and I believe another way and they may follow me for the same reason. Gotcha. And that's why you can have guys telling people drink the Kool-Aid, Jim Jones years ago, or Waco, Texas, because that's their interpretation of the God and life. Absolutely. What else? Somebody else had a hand something? No, I just think that people are know that they that they have a conscience and that they they want to salve it somehow. Mm-hmm. And so they're just constantly seeking to do that without but without any true accountability to God. They don't mind being accountable to people, but um, they don't want to be ultimately accountable to God, so they invent all sorts of different ways to save their conscience. Yeah. Let me just throw you for what it's worth, department. You know my little twist on it. Why are there so many different religions out there? Well, understand having lived in China, where they are master copiers. I, mean, I had a Chinese person say, "We are the best copiers in the world." I'm like, no kidding. You know, that's why when you buy clothes at Beijing, you call it North Fake instead of North Face, or Hill Faker instead of Hill Figure, because. You know, we got a great price on it, but at the end of the day, it ain't the real deal, you know, and, and a lot of pirated DVDs and everything else. But that being said, when I, when I come down to thinking through what is real, I just totally lost my train of thought. I really just went right on my head. Why there are so many Yes, okay. Yeah. I was like, where was that, where was that going? Satan is the master liar. He's the master counterfeiter, all right? He can make, he, he wants people... To think, maybe this is it, maybe this is it, maybe this is it. And you get enough options out there, then what do people do? They follow Oprah, who then says, they're all just the same way that leads to God. So just go your way, your way, your way, your way. We'll all end up there with God. Okay, so Satan has won the day. Now, historically, a lot of these denominations developed because of theological issues, like Pastor was talking about with the Reformation. I mean, Lutherans came right out of the Reformation, and as he's probably going to say, they didn't go far enough away. All right? There's still some carryovers from Catholicism and Lutheranism, that sort of thing. But that being said, if, when it comes down to the church, we are a unity. The unity is Christ, and that unity that brings us together is love. But that doesn't mean that we throw out our doctrinal distinctiveness either. Because right? uh, I remember I, a, a Steve Green song that was sung by him, and I think it was written by somebody for a particular conference. I'm trying to think of the name of the conference. But the song was, Let the Walls Come Down. All right? And if you ever heard that song, the whole point of that song was, we need to take the walls of denominations, knock them all down, and be together as one in Christ. Now, there's a seed of truth to that. If we are truly the body of Christ, yes, we are. Go back to the big circle. The universal church. That is true. But the danger of that, the implicit danger of that is, we could say, as I heard after that conference, I'm trying to remember what the name of that conference was, I remember hearing this guy in a Christian radio when we were in Maryland many years ago saying, wasn't it cool to hear all these different people saying, let's say what makes us all common in this and unites us together. Let's say the name Jesus. Well, everybody's saying Jesus. Well, that sounds all great and good. 
But quite frankly, some of the leaders of that conference, their view of Jesus, their view of salvation, is hugely problematic. Because some of them were Catholics, some of them were Church of Christ, and if you come out of any background in Church of Christ, Church of Christ can be quite very much like a cult, all right? Baptismal regeneration, etc., etc. There's more going on with that. Now, my point in saying that is our unity isn't primarily doctrine. It is love, Jesus says. That's how we relate, but it must be tied to truth. It isn't love separate from truth. It is love united with truth. And that doesn't mean then that if we have the right idea biblically that we do this to other people because love is reaching out with the truth. Love is not alienating us with others through that truth. All right? Going down to the second thing that he says, over on the far right column, the first full paragraph indented there, he says, a second fact of life in the body is diversity. There's unity. We are to be one. But there's diversity. We are to be different. (coughs) Now, let me just say this very simply, but very clearly. The beauty of the church is that it is different. But the battleground of the church can be that we are different. Just like in family relationships, Extended family relationships, marriage relationships, what brings people together is their differences. But sometimes what they end up fighting over the most are their differences. Go figure. You know, how do you figure that one out? All right? But at the end of the day, that is the beauty of the church. And here's what we do, though. Here's the tension in the church. Here's the difficulty in the church. That is intended by God to help grow love in us, those differences. But what do we do? We avoid those differences. We run from those differences. We reject those differences. Because those differences create friction. It's like people have said, iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And somebody has once said, I don't know who said this, but it was a great point. Uh, when you got iron sharpening iron, it creates friction and sparks. For that iron to sharpen iron. Well, if we're iron sharpening iron, there's going to be friction. There's going to be sparks. The question will, will we, in a selfish way, run from or run to others? Will we avoid? Will we be distant? Will we suddenly be sitting on the opposite side of church and going through an opposite door? If we see them coming in this door, I'm going out that door. You're like, oh, that never happens. Yeah, it does. We all know it does. But... Jesus is saying what sets us apart in this body united together is we're different, but we're one. And not only are we different and one, but the third thing he says down in the very end, very last uh, paragraph at the bottom right column of 7.7 is a third and closely related aspect of body life is interdependence. So here's the deal. We're one. We're different. I mean, I can look around the room. I got the better view up here because I see a lot of differences. All right? It's a good look because selfishly, all right, let's just fess up. Selfishly, there are times we want people to be just like us, to do the things we want them to do the way we want them to do them. All right? That's what life can be. But at the end of the day, we all admit that if life was just like me and a bunch of robots that were just like me, what a lousy place this would be. All right? Uh, if we're honest, you know. And some days we think, no, I really would like a world like that. You know, and we'd be tropical, and it would be sunny every day, and everybody would be just like me, all right? 
but that wouldn't work because, number one, the unity is not our similarities. The unity is Christ. The unity, what brought us together, was not that we are the same, is that we are, in our sinfulness, yeah, we're the same, but we're distinctly different, and Christ puts aside those differences in love, which is what we are learning to do as well. And this interdependence, here's to put it in plain words, as he said, we need each other. And I'm just throwing this out tonight, because, uh, as I said, I... I'm taking this class, and this class, I mean, I'm telling you, reading books, reading a bazillion articles, lectures, and papers to write stuff. But I read an article by David Paulison uh, just this week called Innocent Pleasures. And in this article, he wasn't primarily talking about love, but in this article, as you can tell by the title, Innocent Pleasures, he's talking about in our life, yes, God intended for us to enjoy pleasure. Now, pleasure in the right ways, the right places, the right times, the right people, etc., 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 all right? But God made us to have a nature that, that finds pleasure in things. That's, that's part of who he made. Um, for man to enjoy the creation, he intended for Adam and Eve to have incredible pleasure in the garden forever. They spoiled it. And, and so now we have it spoiled. But saying that is, in this article... He's talking about how that we can swing to one of two things. We are working people and we find our fulfillment there, or, or in the midst of our work, we kind of swing back and forth, almost like bipolar. All right, we go over here to work because this makes us feel like I'm important, my identity, whatever, but then there's stress, there's problems, there's pressures, there's irritations, so we swing over here, and over here is my release valves to help me feel better. And that may mean going out and getting the largest Kit Kat I can find, or that may mean whatever. You know, whatever makes you feel good in the moment. You know, that's the thing. The point he makes in this article, just nails it for us right here, is, and you'll have to plow through some, but it's really, really good read. So I only made ten copies, assuming not everybody wants it, and then some of you are here as husband and wife, and you can grab one, and between the two of you, maybe you can put it together. Um, it's a really interesting article because he's talking about, at the end of the day, how we work, and even how we enjoy pleasure ought to be others-oriented. In other words, our choices for pleasure, our choices in life, all of these ought to still come back to, but when I made that choice, did that choice include God? Did that choice include others? Because, admittedly, often the choices that we find for pleasure can be avoidance issues. They may not be sinful. I may not be out back doing crack behind the church, all right? Okay? And you're like, hopefully not, all right? Okay, now that you've got you really awake at the end of the class, all right? I may not be doing that. But, admittedly, we can be, and here's a guy, all right? Here's a guy thinking this way. I can go, all right, life has just been hard, struggle, whatever, tired of dealing with this stuff. So I'm watching sports ad infinitum, all right? I'm watching every sport I can possibly get because that's my drug of choice, all right? But that is a selfish drug of choice because I want to sit there and just go, hey, I deserve a break today. It's all about me. Have it your way. There's our burger theology, all right? And, and that's what happens. But the point of the article that he's driving home in his body life of loving one another is think through our lives. And that's why I just encourage you. I'm not telling you you got to read this. 
I'm not saying it's your homework. Your homework's on the little half sheet of paper over here. Um, but I just encourage you to read through it sometime in the next few weeks. It's a very probing, very helpful, very encouraging article, but also drives home this issue that in all of life, it must come back to me with God and me with others. Anything that goes astray of that goes against what Jesus said. Our defining, our defining quality is our love for one another. And when we go back to our first class or so in here, and we looked at why that early church was so inviting to the world around them, is because remember we said they were together, they were together, they shared, they gave. It was something the world had not seen, but the world needs to see it through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, even though we attempt as best we can by your grace to display love to others, that when we fail, you don't cease loving us. Um, If anything, through the passing of our years, the passing of our life, looking back over uh, our walk with you, we have seen how miserably we have failed, how little we have loved you in comparison to your love, and yet your love has never changed. Uh, That is amazing. That is incredible. And we thank you that it doesn't run dry, that your love is as bountiful today as it was yesterday and as it will be tomorrow. And, Father, as we see that, as we experience that from you, may that motivate us to not be people who withdraw, who avoid, who do what we do more about us being satisfied than you being loved and others being loved, but that we would live like Christ who gave Thank you for him. Thank you for this time we've had together tonight. And we pray these things in Christ's name.